This is the Art of Living Well Radio Network. Radio to inspire enlightened living. You're listening now to the Honest to God series with Angel Rose and Ahanu. This show today, it is a little overcast day in San Diego, at least right now, probably won't be in an hour or so, but I am, I do enjoy it, Ahanu, when it's overcast, I have to tell you, it just feels really, really nice, and uh, you know, we're used to such a change of seasons, and I will tell you, being the first time we've actually been in California in the fall, we haven't quite been here a year yet, Ahanu. But you really can tell that it's become fall here, which is very surprising because the sun still blazes every single day. It's gotten a little bit cooler, and uh, we enjoy that because it's beautiful. Even leaves turn here, Ahanu. Weren't you shocked when you saw those colorful leaves on the ground that day? I was, absolutely. I couldn't believe it because we came out of a restaurant and saw some some maple leaves or something on the ground and they were those fall colors i couldn't believe it i was actually in shock because first of all to see the broadleafed leaves first of all because things tend to be small and survivalist type of leaves here you know they conserve their energy they conserve their water and to see a broadleaf tree my god it was a shock <laughs> well you know and that brings up the topic because one of our questions uh, we've somebody sent to us for tomorrow's show for our free Akashic Record online group. Somebody emailed a question today, and she lives in upstate New York, in Syracuse, New York. And one of her questions is she wants to know why, this is the second year in a row, why the trees, the leaves are not turning beautiful fall colors. They are just going from green to brown immediately, dying immediately. And she wants to know why. So that's going to be one of our questions tomorrow on our on our online Akashic show. But we st- we're still enjoying the beautiful color changes here. So something's definitely going on on the East Coast. I'm glad you brought that up, Angel Rose, because it is a subject that many people are aware of but don't know where to go to ask the questions, where to go to find the answers. And they feel lost to find the answers within themselves. And that's why that's a great forum. So we just point people to worldofempowerment.com and you can sign up there to attend the free group Akashic Record sessions every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific time. And as I say, it's free. You can also access all of the archives where we have spent a lot of time over the last long number of weeks and months answering questions about everything. Really, we've covered everything from angels and archangels to suicide to the famous deceased to aliens to God knows, all those hot topics. And this question tomorrow about the fall, what's happening to our weather, what's happening in our environment, that will also be answered. So we'll point people towards the worldofempowerment.com for every Sunday morning, starting at 10 a.m. Pacific. Now, when we put out a request for people to contact us if they had a story to tell, We got this reply from Charlotte Young in France, and she said, The focus of my passion is freedom, 
freeing the world of the bondage to the agro-alimentary industry that restrict our choices to bad food that makes us sick, then enslaves us to the pharmaceutical industry, keeping us on the synthetic medication, all to end up in neurologically damaged bodies, hooked up onto machines to prolong our lives in hospitals, making millions on keeping us alive as long as possible. (laughs) That attracted my attention. (laughs) Well, let's say freedom from lies, propaganda and hidden knowledge that maintain us under control through fear. We're in a revolution. But like all peaceful revolutions, this is going to take some time, but we're slowly getting there since the 1960s. Now, the fact is, though, that there's much more to this lady than that. Her true essence is about mothers and babies that she believes will save the planet one day. And she says, rejoicing in the power of creating life with their bodies and sustaining that life with the milk that our bodies produce is part of women's right to confidence in themselves and recognition as the most valuable members of society. Well, that's going to be a great discussion today, Hanu. Um, I, you know, it's not just that. She's got such an incredible life so far, and I can't wait to have her tell us about that when we do bring her on in a minute or so. So that's going to be great. So if you do want to call into the show today, and ask any questions, the phone number is 805-292-0349. That's 805-292-03. Uh, what's the last thing? 03 what? I just said it and it went right out of my mind. It's 805-292-0349. But first, I, before we bring her on, Hano, I need to tell our listeners about your new book. Ahano, your book called The Reincarnation of Columbus. This is Ahanu's first book, everyone. It'll be out on Columbus Day in October. And you can pre-order it now at thereincarnationofcolumbus.com. Okay. Thereincarnationofcolumbus.com. That's all one word. And it is the story of Ahanu's uh, grief as a father from losing his firstborn child and how he coped with that, how men cope with things like that, and his journey through uh, his divorce and and how he's become the beautiful spiritual man that he is now. So it's going to be quite a show. He hasn't even let me read it, not even one page of it. Yet I did read some of it a few years ago but it was very incomplete at that time but he's being very selfish everybody with letting his own precious Angel Rose take a look at that manuscript so what do you have to say for yourself about that Ahana? well it's not that I'm keeping it to myself actually because the world is going to be uh, privy to my entire life those deep deep dark secrets and things that we keep to ourselves but I'm glad you brought it up. I wasn't going to mention it, but I'm really glad, Angel Rose, you brought it up because you, I know, have been pushing the benefits of journaling all through our sessions online and on our on our Sunday morning Akashic Record sessions. You've been pushing the benefits of writing down stuff because you can actually uncover nuggets of things about yourself and what you're hoarding, what you're hiding, what your fears are. And we'll be talking about those some of those fears today. Yeah. And... Uh, 
I had many, many fears and uncertainties and lack of confidence and low self-esteem, all because of the shock of the death of my firstborn child. And there was so many coincidences around that that were really, really shocking and hard to come to terms with. I mean, he was born on the day Columbus discovered America. We had called him Columbus long before we even knew that. And he was also uh, died on my birthday and ever, every birthday since I didn't know whether to celebrate or to be sad or what way to cope with, with birthdays and countless other synchronicities that attached themselves to that. For example, another little one was he, uh, we planted a tree in honor of his birth and it died on the day he died. And th- there's very little we can do to explain that. But I, I wrote all this down. And that was the wonderful thing because it was like an ongoing journal for me. And to this day, I'm still journaling about it and uncovering these nuggets of why are we here and where are we going and why are we born at all and why do we die and is there such a thing as death? And, and as you say, it leads you on a spiritual path, ultimately coming back full circle to your divine inner self and that connection with God. And it's a really, really harrowing, interesting, gripping astonishing story actually Uh, I know I'm saying that about my own story everybody has a story and we encourage everybody always to come on the air actually and tell their story just like our good friend Charlotte Young is doing today but we'll come to her in just a few moments the significance of the date is important for me only insofar as we are led to believe lots of things about our lives and one of the things of course that we're led to believe is that Columbus discovered America in 1492 on October 12th. Now, there's many, many, there's much evidence to to dispute that. But nonetheless, the fact was it was significant for me that Columbus was born on that day and he died four months later to the day on my birthday. So the book is being launched on Columbus Day in October of this year. Now, of course, to suit people and to suit the banking system Columbus Day has been moved to the 14th of October this year so we just want to alert people to that simply because it's a Monday and it's a holiday uh, uh, bank holiday weekend so there you are look out for that the reincarnation of Columbus.com or if anybody wants to contact me on the show you get me at ahanu at ahanu.com that's a-h-o-n-u dot com and Angel Rose is A-I-N-G-E-A-L-R-O-S-E, Angel Rose at angelrose.com. Okay, Hanno, are we ready to bring our wonderful guest on today? Absolutely, we're ready, yes. Let's go to Charlotte Young, all the way from France. Good morning, Hi. Charlotte, are many you there? Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, I'm here. Thanks, many, many thanks for having me. We're so glad you could make it this time. I know we had a... A little trouble last time, but we've captured you again. So here you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my fault. I, I, I obviously had not read the times right. I, I got on, I think it was two or three hours later, and, and I, I heard you <laughs> on the website, and I thought it was live. So I started <laughs> calling to you, but of course you couldn't hear me. It was recorded. <laughs> That's okay. So here we are. Here you are. So Charlotte, <laughs> you have such an incredible life, and you've done so many things, and even reading your bio, there's about a, a million questions I'd love to ask you just on some of your experiences. And uh, so would you give our audience a little bit of history about yourself and how you ended up arriving where you are now? Okay, well, 
um, first of all, thank you very much for such a lovely introduction. I hope I don't disappoint you. <laughs> Uh, in the bio, I gave I give the um, the sort of the you know the the stuff that anybody can read and no problem. But but the truth is, I left home very early because there was suicide in the family. My grandfather had committed suicide, and my mother had been suicidal all her life. And uh, I was told that if I didn't leave home, my mother would commit suicide. So I I left home in a hurry. But that's the truth. That's what I don't write in in the bio. So as you can see, I started with a pretty distraught emotional situation. And in the 1970s in Canada, nobody did therapy. Nobody saw a psychiatrist or a therapist or even family counselor. That was that was for crazy people. So uh, basically from that time on, I, I, I went from situation to situation, you know, trying to find myself. That's that's the, the truth of it. But in trying to find myself, I went from country to country and I gained a lot of experience. I learned uh, to speak French fluently, Italian fluently. I, I worked in sports. I because I grew up in in the, the in a on um uh, let's say it was uh, like a farm. It was a horse boarding business. So I grew up in riding. I I, I ridden ponies and then horses all my all my life. And uh, so that what I've noticed since that actually is people who do ride they they can learn other sports really easily. So that was my case. So I learned sports really easily and I ended up. I always wanted to transmit what I knew, so I ended up teaching the, the new sports that I learned. Even dance, I even learned dance and taught dance for a while. And then with my languages, I ended up in France, and uh, I started working in a hotel, which was very badly paid. And um, uh, and then and then other, I saw that other young women my age were were doing these these jobs on professional trade shows where they would either do the, you know, the welcome desk and get people their badges and everything, or they would actually work on a stand as an interpreter. And I thought, well, I could do that. So I sent in my CV and I, and I got taken by a couple of agencies and I started doing that for a while. And that was much, much better paid, but jobs were a few and far between. And, uh, and so then I, I got offered the same kind of a job up here in Paris. So I, I had started out on the Côte d'Azur down in, in Nice, uh, in the south of France. And so I came up to Paris and I started doing the same kind of jobs here for a while. And, uh, and then I, you know, sales and sales, you know, I just, yeah, I wasn't meant to, to do sales. So, um, I did a training course to teach English and that was in 1998. And I began teaching right away. There, there were lots of English teaching schools, uh, at the time. There probably still are now. And, uh, I found one school that, um, actually has one client. And so as a teacher, you stay in the company. So you, you give uh, in-company English lessons. And I've been there for, for 15 years now. And uh, at one point, I got offered a job um, teaching, um, well, in French, it's called TD, which is, uh, uh, I don't know, I don't know what does that stand for? Anyway, it's, it's the actual class, the English class. Uh, well, it can be any class. But anyway, I, I got given these English classes for university students, for law students. And a couple of years after that, I got uh, offered another job in another university. Oh, that's part-time, uh, teaching, well, not children, young adults uh, who are in a master program. Um, where they start out with geography, most of them, and then they do economy, and then they do intervention, which is, I think, crisis intervention. And uh, so I've been teaching English to them for a while. And um, what I had learned along the way, I, I, I began reading I was always a big reader, but I began reading um, a writer called Rianne Eisler. I'm sure many people have heard of this. I heard of her. 
uh, Rihanna, she was an amazing person. She, uh, her, her father got imprisoned by the Nazis in Austria, and her mother miraculously got him freed, and they fled to Cuba, where she grew up. And, uh, and then finally she went to the States when she was older and, and uh, got a diploma, got, got a law degree and I think sociology and I think anthropology. And she, she wrote, um, she started writing probably with other books that I don't know, but the big book that I knew was called The Chalice and the Blade. And for the first time, I, 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 I was just totally blown away because I read about us as humans, our history on the planet before patriarchy. And I was so blown away. I thought, well, I get it now. Now I understand why all over the planet, women on varying levels are considered inferior to men. I get it now. And, and, and so I, I, I started to try to teach that in my, in my English classes, you know, trying to sort of um, create awareness. And uh, in the pharmaceutical company where I was based, nobody was really interested. <laughs> so uh, the years went by, and um, and uh, Rihanna Nice created a, a system, uh, no, um, a program, a company, training company, I guess it is, or um, it's a website anyway, called uh, the Partnership Way. And they can train people, they, they do train people, you can sign up to become um, a caring economics conversation leader, which is what I did. So now I teach that in my university classes. And what I found along the way is that everything I had learned about becoming a mother, and I'll get to that in a minute, um, was actually wrapped up in this caring economics and and uh, devastating patriarchal way that we're in now. I, I hope that doesn't offend anybody. Um, oh, it doesn't offend uh, us. <laughs> so, so now I'm I'm actually using the caring economics uh, program in my university classes, and uh, I'm mixing it up a little bit with. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm uh, combining it uh, a bit with uh, with what I learned um, along the way as I as I became a mother. When I first became a mother in uh, 2000. Well, what am I talking about? It's 2011. It was actually the day after 9/11. <laughs> I became a mother. Um, I I, uh, I started to have problems breastfeeding, and uh, and I consulted every pediatrician in the city, you know, trying to get answers to my breastfeeding problems. And I had even asked a specific question um, to to the midwife who'd been following me at the maternity. I said, "Look, I have had breast reduction surgery. I had it 15 years before." Uh, is that going to affect my breastfeeding? And she said, oh, no, not at all. Uh, if you want to know how to breastfeed, I'll tell you. And I said, yeah, yeah, I do know. I've been asking around me, and I, I've been asking for books, uh, as I'm a big reader, and uh, and everybody says there are no books on the subject. She said, oh, it's easy. You give one breast per feed, uh, and you uh, limit the time of the breast to 10 minutes per breast, and you breastfeed every two to three hours. So I thought, oh, wow, okay, it sounds pretty simple. And if my breast reduction surgery isn't going to get in the way, okay, fine, great. So I started doing what I was told to do, and and my baby was screaming its head off with hunger about every 45 minutes to an hour. 
I didn't know it was hunger because I didn't expect him to be hungry until three hours later. So I thought I was being very generous by giving him the breast about every two hours. And it turned out he wasn't putting on any weight or, or, or hardly any. And uh, so I was persuaded very quickly to give up a bottle so to catch up the, the, the weight loss. And my baby immediately thought, you know, bottles were the greatest thing on earth and, and became, uh, you know, really hungry for bottles and, and like the bottles. He was still attached to the breast because I was told to give the breast first and then finish with the bottle. But he was draining huge amounts of artificial milk. So I went from pediatrician to pediatrician, and everybody told me, one, one told me she was a specialist in breastfeeding because she followed a course on it, uh, being an uh, aller, allergolog. How do you say allergolog in English? I can't remember. Allergist, maybe? Anyway, she, she said she'd followed this program because she was a specialist in breastfeeding. So she said, you have to breastfeed every four hours and because you need uh, the breast need to fill up. And in between the every four-hour feeds, uh, you have to give a bottle. I, I thought, wow, you know, that's kind of odd. I, okay, you've got to wait for the breast to fill up. Hmm, okay. So I started doing that. It wasn't working. And uh, and uh, I, I was pumping my milk. I could see I really wasn't getting much. And uh, so somebody gave me the, the name of another a supposed breastfeeding specialist in the city, who's a pediatrician, who, who told me, uh, uh, you have to limit the, the quantities of artificial milk you give, otherwise you'll get full on the artificial milk, and then he'll breastfeed less frequently, and if he breastfeeds less frequently, well, you, you, you'll have less and less milk. So I did that, and my baby was still starving. <laughs> so finally I went to, um, it was two months by then, I went to an Anetti's meeting, and they said, ah, you have, just, just a second, I've got one of my children who's uh, banging away on a, on a yeah, we're going to go back for a minute and ask her about that chalice in the blade book while she takes care of her child there. Okay, done. That's okay. <laughs> okay, so um, uh, so they said, I have scars on your breast, so have you had breast, breast surgery? And I said, yes, I have. Uh, but, the, but the midwife tells me that that doesn't affect breastfeeding. And she should know. She's a midwife. <laughs> and they kind of... <laughs> You're quite polite about it. And, yeah. and they said, well, you know, we think it does affect breastfeeding. And so they sold me their book, and uh, an at-breast supplementer. And at-breast supplementer, never heard of that. They said they were the first ones. Because the, 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 the reaction I've got before was, artificial milk, bad. Don't give artificial milk. Or artificial milk, good. <laughs> Mix breastfeeding with artificial milk. Right. And I, I denied it sounded great because the truth was my baby was starving. He was almost hospitalized because he was so hungry. And I was in tears all the time because you can see your baby wasting away. You can see he's nervous. He doesn't sleep. He, 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 you know, he cries all the time. He cries at the breast. He screams for three hours every night. You know, you can see there's something wrong. But, you know, according to the very specialists, I was doing everything right. He just, you know, my body just wasn't producing milk. It just seemed odd. Anyway, so they said, well, actually, with this kind of situation, breast reduction surgery, uh, you don't have the ducts on the gland, or the ducts, really, uh, that are taken away during breast reduction surgery to 100% breastfeed your baby. Huh. Uh, so you're going, you will have to supplement him, and uh, you can pump your milk to stimulate the production, 
but 90% of you uh, generally have to add uh, either donated milk or artificial milk. So, um, but you don't have to give it to a bottle because artificial nipples will sabotage his sucking technique. So then, okay, that made sense. So then I was, uh, there were no donors at that time. It it really wasn't a a common thing at the time. Very very few people breastfeeding, even fewer people wanted to to breastfeed at the time. Most women, if they breastfed, it was really out of a sense of duty because their pediatrician told them they should or something. So uh, I used artificial milk and I supplemented my baby until he started on table foods. So by the time he was between six and seven months, he didn't need any more artificial milk. And he went on breastfeeding for several years after that. The, the World Health Organization and the Torah and the Koran all recommend a minimum of two years. And uh, if you want to talk about why is there a two-year minimum, I can, I can, well, first, first, I want to, first, I want to go back if I can, because we are going to, we've been spending a lot of time on this, but I do want to go back to your mention of the book, The Chalice and the Blade, because I want to set the stage, I want to set the stage for our listeners about what you have discovered through that book about the whole matriarchal, patriarchal System. So, could you give us a foundation first, Charlotte, with that? Okay, I'll, I'll give you what I remember from reading it because it was twenty years ago now. Uh, what I remember from reading it, the impressions that were left that I was left with, and I'll mix it up with a little bit of what I believe now. So, in the book, I learned it goes um, further, even further back than the Sumerian uh, people, who are the ones who gave us agriculture, um, writing. Uh, art, dance, sports, the study of the stars, the movement of the planets, um, music. They had underground plumbing. They had flushing toilets, uh, irrigation. They had a, the, a, they were the ones who started the justice system that we still use today with a jury. Um, and it was matrilinear. It, now, there's a difference between matriarchal and matrilinear, don't forget. Uh, matriarchal means women are the rulers, the ones who decide the boss. Uh, which is how a patriarchal system is, only if men who are in charge were the bosses. And matrilinear is where the inheritance goes through through the, the women's line. So at the time, I, I didn't really understand that it was linked to domination. I, I, I didn't really understand where that all came from. Now I understand uh, that somewhere along the line, somebody introduced to humans the idea of competition. Somebody introduced them to this idea that some of you or one of you can be better than others. And the one or those of you who are better than others, you will be rewarded with uh, either greater riches or power. And that concept until then, as far as we can make out from the advanced civilizations, which were all along the Euphrates River at the time, who were all Pacific, um, civilizations. They didn't have great memorials to war. They didn't have gigantic buildings and, and castles with walls around them. Or, uh, you know, they pro- I don't know, they, they probably lived in, in mud hut cities or something. All we know is that they, they didn't have anything that they could defend themselves with. Because when the barbarian tribes came along and started to massacre them all with violence, 
that they just they didn't have a leg to stand on. They they were all massacred very easily. And uh, okay, so here we have these matrilinear societies with a judicial system, all focused on sports and art and dance and music and and uh, marriages existed, but marriages the marriage contracts were apparently for one year. There are stone tablets that that show records of one year marriage contracts. And as it was matrilinear, uh, men didn't own anything; women did. So. Uh, after the one year, the woman was obliged to reuse him without harming him, and he could move on if he wanted, or they could renew, I suppose. Um, and then I like that without harming that him. <laughs> that's well, good. That's women were required to release him without harming him. Uh, that's pretty funny. Well, okay, go ahead. Now, now, from from what I understand now, I can see that actually there are natural mirrors. Civilizations. There are very small civilizations, uh, matrilinear civilizations around the world, and I think a lot of uh, our modern sociologists or anthropologists consider them uh, female-dominated. I think that's how it's interpreted. But being a woman, um, I, I the way I feel is that, and from what I've read in sociology books is that women generally need consensus. Women won't make uh, a sort of a... Uh, um, they, they won't make a decision for everybody until they get consensus. That's generally the way, the way it is with women. So I have a very hard time believing that a matrilinear society would be woman-dominated. And I can't really see any women enforcing their domination because of their their size, you know. Let's face it, women are smaller. We're not, you know, we, we don't beat up men generally. It's generally the other way around. We don't use physical force to dominate. Right. So traditionally, I, I don't see how women really could, if it was a question of domination, how they could enforce domination. So I think when when some of these Western countries interpret the, the, the today natural linear societies as matriarchal, I think it's a misnomer. I think they are probably natural linear, not matriarchal. Okay. Mm-hmm. Did you want to say something, Ahana? You look like you're about to speak. He's speechless. This is the first time I've seen Ahana. <laughs> well, you know, it is significant that I haven't contributed up to now. And the reason, of course, is because you know, you're speaking about a woman's experience of breastfeeding, and I'm always, always, always amused when people talk about going to a pediatrician, and a pediatrician is a man, or speaking about breastfeeding to a male doctor, and the male doctor is offering all this advice, and not having the experience himself. I'm always, always amused by that. And it's also the reason why, as I say, I haven't been uh, giving any input here, because I'm listening, and I'm listening... I'm intrigued, actually, that you would spend so much time and energy exploring the whole concept, even to go backwards in time, as you say, to the Sumerians and down by the Euphrates River and look at the origins of all of this and then bring it forward in time to your present-day circumstances and, and try and look for answers. And 
you know, I know from your biography that that's, that's what motivates you now to bring balance and, and equalization and bring freedoms and liberation to women on a whole number of different fronts. And I'm absolutely in admiration of that, Charlotte. And, but as I say, it's also the reason why I've been silent because it's an area that is very close to my heart insofar as you may have heard me mention at the beginning of the program about my book about the death of my first child and one of the things that I noticed that's a common thread here is that I discovered men's inability to cry and express themselves because of the the dominant patriarchal rule that real men don't cry Mm -hmm. and this is what we're brought up to believe and this is what we're brought up to learn and this is what we're told as little children and I mean that that is such an untruth and it's such a damaging belief and I find the same thing is true also of women's issues you know you speak about breastfeeding and breast I remember growing up too where you know breastfeeding in public was an absolute no-no do you know what I mean this was some kind of this was an insulting behavior of some kind and I find that abhorrent it really is abhorrent in fact when I see now when I see a woman breastfeeding I'm in admiration I'm in absolute awe of the of the courage and the the beauty and the wonder and the miracle of it all what do you say to that okay um yeah I I am I am too when I see them breastfeeding in public well you have to remember we all come from this uh, can I say occidental culture where uh, as of the, don't forget, even in Christ, when Rome came along, Rome was extremely patriarchal. In, in Rome, uh, men had the, the say over a woman's life. She could, he could decide whether she lived or died, as they do still in Pakistan and many other countries. Um, in, in, I, and I tell this to my law students today. I say, do you ever wonder why it is that lawyers wear long robes and why people with religious office wear long robes? And a long time ago, doctors uh, wore long robes. Well, that's because way back in time, those three areas, uh, justice, health, and religion, were considered sacred, and those were exclusively reserved for women. And in order for those violent tribes to integrate into the mind and spirit of the Pacific matrilineal tribes that they had just massacred and dominated, they were able to train in those three fields, but they had to dress the same. Not only did they have to learn the way, the way, well, the teaching, the way, they also had to dress alike, like that. So suddenly we went from an area where women were the most valuable citizens in those societies to where suddenly they had no value. At the time of the Exodus, there's a list of the things that were taken out of Egypt. And for the people at the time, women were in their rightful place, which was after donkeys, sheep, goats, uh, probably pigs, and any agricultural livestock that they had. Women were listed after them. And even today, if you listen to somebody telling the story of Exodus, they will say, oh, X number of, of uh, people left Egypt following Moses, and that's not even counting women or children. <laughs> I heard that uh, last year in a, in a church. There was a, a, a storytelling session for children. And I heard this modern-day woman, it was the year 2012, telling that story. And she said, 
and that's not even counting women or children. So it's, it's, it's written in the ancient testament that Moses sent his soldiers out into the land uh, of uh, Palestine and he gave them uh, orders to massacre every living thing. And there are 12 cities listed in the ancient testament of the 12 cities that they massacred. Um, except the only thing is we don't know if they massacred everybody just in those 12 cities or if those 12 cities were uh, a representation of the population that they, they massacred. Did they, did they massacre all the population around it? And the orders given to his soldiers were, you massacre every living thing except for young girls who have not yet known a man. You may keep those for yourselves. And after you may keep them for one year, and after one year, you may release them without doing them harm. The trouble is, in that new patriarchal system, women had no value. The only value women had was, was uh, linked to the man whom they belonged to. Yes. Yes. And do you think that's changing now, Charlotte? I mean, is there there is in general a, a woman's movement out there? But do you think do you think in the minds of men it's effective? It's becoming effective. Do you think there is an equalization happening? Do you think there is a reversal? Do you think there's a oh, normalization? Absolutely. Absolutely. You have to remember, at the time that Christ came, the whole entire world as we know it, I and mean, civilization as we knew it at that time, known civilization was all violent and patriarchal. It was all about the biggest, the toughest, the strongest. He who massacred the most people was the most powerful. So women had zero value. Now, according to the book in the Chalice and Blade, the question, the question is asked, why? Why did people become like that? Well, according to research, apparently before the Sahara was a desert, uh, all the nomad people who moved around, pasturing their, their livestock, overpastured and had no more land to pasture. So as the land was wasting away, uh, they would encroach on other people's land to pasture their, their livestock. And that's how wars came out. And, and so suddenly violence became the, the quality, the absolute quality of the day. Yes. And so as women, that's just not our thing, uh, generally speaking. I mean, unless you, you know, you have some kind of psychopath parents or something, I mean, you've had a really bad situation. Generally, women are not violent. Everything that was considered feminine value, so caring, anything to do with caring, life-giving, life-sustaining, suddenly had very little value. And, okay, that's the way it was. And when Christ came along, by the time he came along, the original teachings of Christ were to give women equal status. Maria Magdalena was a teacher, as he was, according to the ancient uh, scriptures. Uh, and that was the big thing. That was the big deal. That's what it was all about, was bring the sacred feminine back into equality. Women must have equal status. And according to um, many ancient writings, Maria Magdalena belonged to um, one of these, uh, well, I'm going to call it a mystery school because a lot of them are called mystery schools later on, uh, which brought power, personal power, to people through uh, the union, the sexual union between a man and a woman. That's a very, very, very ancient um, teaching and school. And at the time, it was very much recognized, but 
as far as conquering other lands and, and massacring people and bringing gold into your own little little country or, or nation or whatever it was, that had no value. So that was already by that time it was kind of a cult. So that, that, that teaching was what Christ tried to bring back. God is in us all. Uh, God is not a man sitting up in the sky judging us all, yes. uh, sending those who are bad to hell and uh, rewarding those who are good uh, or who have paid uh, at church on Sundays uh, entrance into heaven. God is in everyone, and it's it's not something we can touch or feel, uh, but it's in us. It's everywhere. God mm-hmm. is everywhere. But Charlotte, isn't and that still going on today? I mean, but it's not gold now. It's It's oil and it's other kinds of control and domination and enforcement of various laws and rules. Absolutely. It doesn't matter what form it takes, whether it's gold or petroleum or sugar or or, or whatever it is, coffee, whatever that is. And indeed water. The popular thing is. Yes, water indeed is. I don't know who said it, what president said it, but he said uh, how to dominate a nation, either through bombs or debt. And one of the ways you can bring into their needs is by controlling the food, the water, and uh, what was the other thing? Yeah, the money, of course, and, and, and money. Yeah, but that all depends on it, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, yeah, making them dependent. So you, you make people dependent on you, and if, they, if, they don't, if they're not, you know, doing what you want them to do, you say, oh, we're going to ration your food, or we're going to ration your water, yes. or whatever. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it doesn't matter what form it takes. It's a question of domination, one dominating yes. another. Now, I, I have to say, another. Charlotte, I, I love the way you are, able to connect together these what's what what seems are such disparate subjects you know we we started off talking about lactating women breastfeeding and so on but yet there is that subtle but deeply connected um, thread between the man and the woman male and female power and control domination matriarchal patriarchal rules laws regulations governments war and you know, you're, you're able, you've connected them very, very subtly, but yet very succinctly. And what I'd love to know, and this is something that we like to always offer our listeners, instead of going down the road of fear and trepidation, we, we like to be able to offer mm-hmm. some kind of a solution or to, to at least put in people's minds that there, there is possibly a way out of this. There are choices in every moment that people can make. So what would you suggest to people in terms of your experience and your knowledge and coming from that place of empowerment that you've had through your breastfeeding experiences? What can people do? Or, or how can people look upon the warmongering that's going on now and the drums of war with Syria and all of that kind of stuff that we're listening to every day? What can people do on a moment-by-moment basis that would help them release this and bring back the balance and the self-empowerment? Wow. Well, I'll, um, tell, I'll tell you what, can you, do you want to hold on to that for a moment? Because we do need to take a little studio break, and perhaps you might address that the moment we come back. Would you do that? Yes. Okay, just bear with us for a moment. Okay. This is the Art of Living Well Radio Network. Radio to inspire enlightened living. The Honest to God series with Anne Gail Rose and Ahanu. 
Hi, you welcome back everybody. We're having a wonderful conversation today with Charlotte Young about uh women and women's place in society, past, present and future. So uh welcome back, Charlotte. And Ahanu presented you with a a uh, whopper of a question before the break. So just just do what you can with it because I do know we're gonna get back around to this thread of how important uh, a woman's role is in the breastfeeding of her child. So go ahead and give us any kind of light you can offer. Okay, well, as I'm sure you know, everybody has their own emotional baggage. Everybody has the own place that they start from, their own starting place. So I guess the bottom line is equality. Women must have equal value. Money must not be the greatest value of any society, neither should petroleum be. I think caring should be the number one value in any society. And it should be caring. Whatever caring activity it is, whether it's taking care of the sick, taking care of children, educating children, um, uh, Whatever caring activity is taking care of the planet, uh, this has to be the number one value in, in all societies. And when all societies have understood that, as we're connected today, I think we're on the road to it. This is a big thing we were missing. We needed to be connected. You know, in some countries, more than three women gathering at a time is forbidden, is illegal. To me, that is the, the ultimate key to understanding that somebody knows what's going on here. Somebody knows that we are that 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 this this is all planned. This has all been planned for a long time. Yes. The way I see it is, we've got to get out from get away from being controlled. And that when television came around, wow, that was the greatest propaganda tool uh, known to man so far. It was better than the troubadours. The troubadours could give us the real messages in a hidden way with song and verse, uh, or they could give us the official message. It depended on the troubadour. Mostly troubadours gave the, the love and caring message, but, but, you know, generally that's how it was. Troubadours was our only way of getting news from the other side of the country or the other side of the world, and it was always late. So nobody was really that connected, not as connected as we are today. So with this wonderful new tool, tool of, of technology, we can be connected. So to get away from being controlled, we have to be able to recognize what is propaganda and what isn't. I personally feel, this is my personal thought, that you can always recognize when something is being presented in order to dominate. Like, for instance, in France, pediatricians get one day of training on nutrition. And guess who gives them that day on training in nutrition? Nestle. Yes, of course. It's called Nestle Nutrition. <laughs> Great. So if you want nutritional information from a pediatrician or a doctor, well, that's where they're, that's what they're going to be quoting from. And it's not it's only in that field. That, that's the case in, in lots of other fields also. Okay, I didn't know. But in, in, where I come from, we call that conflict of interest. Well, apparently it's not recognized as such in, in this country, in France, and probably in other countries too. I, I don't know. So in order to get away from, in order to recognize what is propaganda and what isn't, uh, personally, I wouldn't go into just any bookstore. 
uh, I started my uh, my lactation reading up, which led into uh, in, in my lactation group. The lactation group I went to had their own library, so I read all the books in in that library, and then I started asking for recommendations for other books. So I was given book after book after book because once you get once you get a handle on the breastfeeding thing, you understand that all this this false information is being spread uh, and and ignorance is being maintained specifically to maintain control over what we eat, which is money to the government, of course, and money to the agro-elementary industry. People are kept ignorant in this domain so that we are dominated by these industries so that a few people can get a lot of money in their pockets. Once you understand that, that's fine. Then you go into statisticalities, you learn about all kinds of impossible breastfeeding situations. Okay, that's fine. And you go into the family stuff and, and you know, how to how to have a peaceful family, how to not have um, siblings, you know, punching each other out every day or, and, you know, fighting. You know, we all, we all, have, all parents know about this. It's, it's hard to handle. And because we're all raised in our own uh, Western or Occidental educations, we generally act on reflex. And most of our reflexes are you know, that comes from our own childhood. So as you were saying, if as a little boy you were taught, stop crying, there's nothing to cry about, there's nothing wrong, uh, stop being such a, a baby, you know, you're, 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 you're ashamed to, to the family because of what you're doing, because of how you're behaving. Of course, that's going to be your knee-jerk reaction when you see something that bothers you. And so the question is, as a parent, how do you, how do you go against your training? That that gut well, it's not really a gut reaction. The the ingrained education that you weren't even aware that you were acquiring because you were too little to be aware of it. How do you how do you go above and beyond that? How do you react as a as a as a good parent would, you know? And and so you get all these books, uh, specialized books, which you wouldn't find in, in just any library. And, and personally, that, that all started connecting with all the Rianne Eisler books uh, to me. So I guess my, my solution has been read a book about it. <laughs> but not everybody's going to read a book. So I guess there are websites, there are, there are, there are parenting groups, there are, uh, there are lots of, I know every school has, uh, has the parenting groups. Um, what do they call parents? I, I can't remember what they're called in the U.S. I know what they're called here in France, but there's... there's Parent-teacher parent, association parent, type things. Yeah. Parent-teacher. Yeah, parent PTAs. Yeah. yeah. PTA, okay. So there's those kind of, of, of groups. And if, for example, you're, you're suffering from, I don't know, joints, your joints are degenerating. You know, if you go to see a doctor who's been trained in nutrition by Nestle Nutrition, you know, or by the pharmaceutical industry, you're going to walk out with a prescription with a lot of uh, medication to take, which is not necessarily going to get to the cause of the problem. So I say, well, start looking into nutrition. You know, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Mercola's got a lot of good stuff to say in English. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have our writers here in France. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know. I, I know a little bit about nutrition because I've done my own research, but I mean, I've read the books that I've been looking into, but everybody has to look into whatever their needs are, and that's how the road to finding out the truth starts. 
I think you start by. Let me interject here too. Yeah, let me interject here too that there is a program in America. I don't know if it's extended to Europe yet, uh, called Brain Highways, and you could just Google Brain Highways, and it's um, it's a program that. Hanu and I are both taking on right now, and I say taking on because there's a lot of work to it. But uh, it was a program developed by a woman who uh, was was trying to help children with behavioral problems. And what she discovered is that, you know, no child really wants to behave badly, that they usually have underdeveloped parts of their brains. And that could be from, that could be from anything from not being able to breastfeed, which of course, um, that whole sucking mechanism, uh, stimulates all sorts of development in a baby, but from not creeping enough, not crawling enough, uh, walking too soon, okay, and, but she also discovered that adults um, have the same problem. In other words, if you were not developed properly as a baby or if you went through trauma, let's say, and certain brain functions uh, stopped developing because of that trauma, and you're now an adult, um, your capacity to live a balanced life, which is really what we're talking about internally, an ability to be balanced, uh, is not going to be there. So... She developed a program where if you sign up your child for this program, the parents do the program as well. Both parents have to participate. They literally go back and creep. Uh, they go back on the floor and they creep. And she won't tell you how to creep. Your body has to figure it out. And this is all about developing the, um, she calls them the pons area of the brain, the lower brain, and then uh at a certain point in the course, you switch to creeping or crawling, excuse me. Okay, so mm-hmm. the thing is she's developed an online program for adults. And we went to this introductory evening because my granddaughter was having some trouble. So we all went, you know, the whole family went to listen to this program. And I came home and I signed up right away. I mean, I, I'm i no idiot. I know that I have undeveloped parts of my brain. I think back on my childhood I was not breastfed because when I was born in the 1950s you know formula and bottles was the new rage you know that's that's what mothers that's what mothers were doing so and plus I look at things in my own life where I get stuck and I was it was obvious it was obvious that I had certain brain functions that weren't at their peak so Ahana and I have been creeping around on the floor now for four weeks, and um, it's hard. That is very hard, you know. To be, it's harder for an adult because you know, obviously, you're bigger, you're you weigh more, and your body has to figure out how do you creep along the floor. So the program is incredible, though. I have to tell you, it's absolutely fantastic. It's worth every ounce of the work. Because you immediately start to feel differently and you can feel it from inside out. You know, you feel your core changing. And so I just wanted to mention huh. that because it's, um, I mean, this woman has been doing this, I think, for maybe 20 or 30 years now. And only now is she um, having doctors attend the workshop and um, schools are starting to be interested. Only now. 
But in, in my daughter, granddaughter is seven and a half, and in four weeks, she's like a different child. And just, really? <clears throat> she's calmer, she's organized, uh, little tasks, you know, that she wouldn't do before, let's say, you know, something small like, you know, eating your cereal and waiting for somebody else to pick up your dish, uh, or grandpa, can you cut my pancake? You know, I mean, now she just does all those things herself. Uh, she actually spent the night last week and she took off her clothes and she folded them all neatly and put them on a chair. I mean, it was just things that self-responsibility, you know, having, being organized, you could tell. Uh, she doesn't get upset over the same things. She doesn't have meltdowns. She reasons things out differently. And her schoolwork is uh, also changing. You know, her ability to read has absolutely uh, improved 100%. So I just wanted to mention that because uh, you're working with behavioral people. And I thought, you know, I, adults do it online. Um, I don't know if there's anybody in your part of the world that's doing it. But anyway, I just thought I'd mention that. Brain Highways is the name. I think it's worth mentioning, though. I got though. it up on... Yeah, you got it. Okay. I think it's worth mentioning, though, yeah, I got that it up on mine. one of the interesting things about that lady is that, I mean, she wouldn't call herself a nonconformist, and I, I'm only using that word by way of my best way to explain it. You know, she will she will say it's not necessary to listen to bad advice that may be coming from teachers or tutors or, or the school system or the education system because she's recognizing that that's what has us in these difficulties in the first place. So she, in a way, she's going back to the primal part of us that says, you know, we know how to develop. We know how to, the body knows how to grow itself. And we've got, we, and, and by bringing us back to that, it balances the two hemispheres of the brain and brings in cognition and recognition and imagination and the ability to grow that in lots of educational systems may be stifled or may be funneled into a particular way of doing or a way of believing. And I, and I thought that was quite interesting because, you know, like you, when we were reading your bio, Charlotte, that you know, you, you, you do, you do not necessarily believe everything that you're told or everything that you read or everything that you hear. It's a matter of coming back to that self-referral place, that place that says, does this feel right to me? Does this bounce well off my, my, my core? You know, and, and this is the part of the empowerment that we want to bring people around to. And this is what we recognize in what you're doing. It's saying, isn't it, don't necessarily believe all that you're being told or hear or, or read. That you, you really must be self-referral. And there's another thing that that brings in too. And it's a part that's very close to ourselves in our day-to-day -day work. And especially with the work that Angel Rose does in terms of the Akashic Record readings, because a lot of people come to her for private readings and they'll ask like, oh, I'm, I'm getting guidance from Archangel this and from Saint that and from this other ascended master being and so on, you know. And one of the things that we found from the Akashic Records is all that's happening there is people have moved from listening to the local priest or the local teacher or the, or the, the minister, or the judge, or the policeman, 
and moved up a level in spirit and said, okay, who, who, who else can I take instruction from? You know, because I'm not able mm-hmm. to make these choices myself. So they had gone to another layer of authority. And this is what we call the authority problem. And so they're handing their power away now to a whole new level of, of, of something. But they're handing their power away. That's the bottom line. So we say to people, totally. there, is, there is no hierarchy of authority. There's only you and God's source, whatever you want to call it yourself. There's only you and that place. And, and, and this, is, this is the key to our, our understanding is that you bounce that back off yourself and your own source, creator, God, whatever you call it yourself, and stop handing your power away mm-hmm. to other people and authorities. And I also think, too, I know for myself, raising children, because uh, my ch- first son was born in uh, 1977, and back then breastfeeding was starting to become more popular again. So it was actually great because I breastfed all my children and I had my son through what's considered Lamaze natural birth, which of course it's not. I found out how, how much it isn't. <laughs> and my second daughter, uh, my second child, you know, my husband at the time was away in boot camp in the Marine Corps and, uh, we had no money and I moved back to my hometown. Figured I'd have my child back then, and because the medical money never came through the military in time, I started looking for, like, okay, I'm seven months pregnant, who can deliver my baby? And I went to La Leche League in the U.S., and I they put me in touch with this midwife, this nurse midwife, and we started talking about home birth, and she delivered my child at home. And even even that, you know, was such a, you know, there's so much fear around that, having a baby at home, which, of course, we know in the past was just a normal thing women did. But, um, you know, I had to do all this stuff, like I had to let the ambulance know, and I had to blah, 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 you know. I had to cover myself, in other words. Both my daughters were actually born through midwives, which was, a wonderful, wonderful experience. But I won't lie to you. I mean, I did go through fear myself around that decision, saying, you know, I had pressure from my mom, my mom, my my parents, you know, uh, my in-laws about the safety, and I was risking the life of my child and all this stuff. And I had to go through an inner decision. And I'll just extend that forward and say, you know, I wasn't somebody who had trouble breastfeeding, and we will get back to that in just a moment. But as I went through my life, I had an older sister, just a year older. She homeschooled every one of her children. And she homeschooled them. She homeschooled them because um, she recognized the insanity in the school system, and uh, she never vac. I don't think she vaccinated her children either. All right. Yeah, and she would always put pressure on me. Why are you sending your children to school? And I just remember at the time, inside me, I knew she was right. But I still had all of this fear around, you know, what would my husband say? Because he was just a normal person. You know, I I was afraid of the confrontation. And I was also afraid of my inability to teach them because I didn't do so great in school. But anyway, ultimately, 
uh, when they were teenagers and they were in high school, they did, uh, we did quit the normal system and they did do a home study course and which was so much better because at 15 and 16 years old, they of their own devices went out and got jobs. My, my youngest daughter had a, you know, her own Jeep by the time she was like 17 years old and you know, it was such a different experience. Wow. And even even that, I would look back and say, what I know now is still not natural education. You know, I mean, I I'm more of a component of Summerhill in England, or uh, there's that one school in Russia that's a free school. But I'm just making the point that this transition out of authoritarian beliefs and doctors being yeah. the ultimate authority. And, uh, you know, I even have a cousin who used to laugh at me because she works at Yale. And she'd laugh at me and she'd say, oh, you know, when you talk about energy, you just lose me. Uh, you're just trying to say that all these, uh, the best doctors in the world with the best educations at Yale don't, don't know, you know, don't know how to treat people. And meanwhile, she's had her thyroid removed and all sorts of stuff and oh. is going through all this problem and, but my point is, is this transition, Charlotte, as you know, is not an easy one to make. When you start inquiring and going against uh, the system on every level, pharmaceuticals, religious doctrine, uh, what your parents say, what your family believes, it's all it's all initiations in my book. That's what I call it. It's an it's an initiation for the soul to break free of all that. So so now that we've establish that i'm really interested in how you you know pick up your story from where you left off with your difficulty with breastfeeding your child and the leche league and how that has evolved for you okay thanks well um first of all i wanted to say that uh research in breast milk didn't start until the 1980s so until the 1980s Doctors were telling women that there's nothing, and I know one woman who quoted her doctor, she said, there's no milk that's worth good old cow's milk. It's scientific, madam. It's scientific. Because it all started out, don't forget, the patriarchal system. Yeah. Uh, there were a lot of wars. We needed soldiers, and we needed factory workers. So in order to get women to make many, many, many babies, they, the babies were not allowed to sleep with the mothers. So the babies were taken away at birth, given to a wet nurse, and the mother, the biological mother, would get pregnant again very, very quickly. So at that time, it was normal, because women were not breastfeeding and they were not sleeping with their babies, to have at least eight children in their lives. Twenty children in their lives was not uncommon. And, of course, half of the children died uh, because they weren't breastfed for very long or 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 not well no they they would have had to have had some breast milk but anyway children died a lot and women of course died like flies because their bodies were just destroyed with this the, the too many pregnancies our bodies are not meant to have babies one after another in in countries which we call developing countries who do not depend on the pharmaceutical industry for pharmaceutics they have either plants or or whatever their their method is. Uh, the births are spaced out between two and four years, sometimes more. 
And as, uh, a long time ago, women, as women were the only people allowed in the uh, health uh, field, they are the ones who have the plant knowledge. So they would pass plant knowledge from mother to daughter, mother to daughter. So if a woman didn't want to get pregnant, she would consult the local, what, what later was known as witch. Actually, I don't know if you know or not, but the word witch comes from Wicca, and Wicca means knowledge. So women who had knowledge had plant knowledge enough to prevent pregnancy, increase fertility, stop a pregnancy, so interrupt a pregnancy. Women had basically the power and control of life, which is why they were a huge threat to the, to the religious people who, you know, the, the Council of Nicaea, the, the religious people who came along much later, which is how the witch hunt started later on. Uh, so, so anyway, if, if a woman doesn't sleep with her baby, if she doesn't breastfeed, she's going to get pregnant very, very fast. So that was the goal. Women were making babies, you know, like factories, and they were dying, but it didn't matter. You could always pick up another woman somewhere along the line and, and remarry and, and have more babies. So already from way, way back, it was considered tradition for women not to breastfeed their babies. And when... When people decided they didn't want to be using wet nurses anymore, they looked for other alternatives, and there was Nestle and companies like that uh, to say, oh, look, well, you know, you can use other mammals' milk, you know, and and, and when the orphanage started, which was at the uh, the beginning, you know, the end of the 19th century, they, they started, it was Victorian era, that's, that's when the, you know, maybe a bit before, anyway, it's very recent, this idea of having orphanages. Uh, those, the, the, the nurses would take the babies and line them up to feed directly off goats or sheep or donkeys. And, of course, in some places, the, the uh, survival rate was zero, zero percent. They're, they're, in other places, some babies did survive. But anyway, so along comes Nestle and companies like that, and they say, oh, here, we've got this, this other species milk. You just mix it up with the sugar, and the baby will drink it, and there's a pretty good chance he'll survive. And so as time went on, they, they, they added more vitamins and nutrients to it and, and because babies were still dying pretty fast. And so up until the 1980s, uh, doctors who were trained in medical school would tell women that nothing was as good as good old cow's milk. Um, and I have to say also that Carnegie and Rockefeller gave grants in the 1950s, in the 1950s, to medical schools who would agree to focus their curses, their, their studies, their programs on pharmaceutics. So very quickly, any medical schools that were focused on prevention or actual health, nutrition, would they, they started dropping off. And, and I, I highly doubt any exist today, or if they exist, they would be called naturopathy schools. So it was, it was done on purpose to have everything focused on chemicals and in the, in the um, well, synthetic medicine, we should call it, synthetic medicine, there we go. Um, so in the 19, uh, let me see, early 1960s, late 1950s, Midwives, midwifery was outlawed in, in some countries, and suddenly everybody said uh, midwives are dirty and uneducated. They have nothing to contribute to, to, to women uh, giving birth. We're going to take it over. So suddenly the medical industry took over birth giving, uh, uh, birth, well, what we call birth management, because um, normally it's, it's a woman who manages her birth. It's the mother who manages her birth, um, and, and the midwife just helps her. Uh, so in this new 
point of view, women were going to be managed and told what to do to give birth, and, and the medical industry would save lives. And, and I have to stand up a little bit for these doctors because, you know, when people become doctors, I think their first motivation, probably, I can't say for every single person, but generally would be because they want to help people. They want to make a contribution to humanity and making people, making people better. So I really think they have excellent motivation. The, I think they're too young and inexperienced and uneducated to understand what goes wrong and, and what's going on in, in, the, in medical schools how they're told that if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist, and, and if you can't see it, it doesn't exist. you know what I mean? So from their perspective, they are telling the truth, and they are doing the best they can. They're doing the best job they know how to help people. They don't know how limited they are. They don't know how much damage they're doing to women when they're managing their births. So going back to this time in the 1950s when suddenly the medical industry took over women's birthing supposedly to save lives and putting women on their backs, which is there's no mammal on the planet who gives birth on their back. It's, it's the most destructive way to, to give birth, and it's the most dangerous way to, to give birth. But anyway, that's how it started happening. All the normal, regular midwife practices, such as checking under the tongue to see if there was a tight frenulum or not, got thrown out. So basic things like that uh, didn't exist anymore. We're not part of the, the birthing process. So as of the 1960s, early 1960s, uh, about, well, some, some studies show that it's 6%, others said it's 10%, and some say that it's 12% of the population are walking around with tight frenulums. And I know you're thinking, so what's that got to do anything with anything? Okay, <laughs> a tight frenulum. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. It's a midline problem. Uh, this midline problem goes from the pubis all the way up the, the middle of our body, up the thorax, uh, the face, top of the head, down the back of your neck, so the cervical bones, uh, your backbone, all the way down to the anus. That's the midline, okay? And in 12% of the, approximately between 10 and 12% of the population, uh, as the tongue develops, the, the membrane that's under the tongue does not degenerate. It's supposed to degenerate. It's called apoptosis, which frees the tongue to be able to be completely mobile. Now, until the late 1950s, it was a midwife's job to put her finger under the baby's tongue, and if she felt this membrane, was tight, she would snip it with a pair of scissors. As it's got no nerves in it, so um, it's um, not innervated. I think that's the term in English. It's not innervated. There are no nerves in it. It's not something that's painful, but it does open the membrane, which frees the tongue. So in, in, you mentioned the, the, um, the crawling exercises or creeping exercises on brain highways. It's funny because I've read about this. this. There's a famous book called The Continuum Concept, Continuum Concept by Jean Leidloff or Jean Leidloff. Jean Leidloff is a brilliant woman. She just died a few years ago. She's a psychologist. She was still working until a few years ago when she, she died. She wrote the most wonderful book called The Continuum Concept. And in that book, she mentions the calling exercises. And she, you say this woman, uh, Mary E.T. Boyle, has been doing this for over 20 years. 
I don't remember reading a name or the name of a study in the continuum concept, but she's probably talking about that woman and she's probably talking about those exercises because she says that some children who had uh, reading difficulties were made to crawl on all fours um, regularly, once a day for a period of about two weeks. And at the end of the two week program, their reading capabilities had increased by 98%. So I'm sure she's talking about that. That's that's one of the books that's in the Lechelid libraries. Anyway, so another thing that we're discovering now as we rediscover the problem with frenulum is not only does it create tension in the jaw and the tongue, inability to breastfeed, it gives the mother extreme pain when the baby's breastfeeding. This is how she she gets cracks on her nipple. There are other reasons too, but this is one of the common reasons that it mostly goes um, goes uh, inaperçu. How do you say inaperçu? It doesn't get noticed uh, at birth anymore because it's just not part of the even the modern midwives today. It's not part of their their routine checks. So this takes in and means that breastfeeding is going to really hurt the mothers. It will create cracks. Uh, the baby. Um, can get uh, severe reflux, or even mild reflux because of it, uh, can have breathing problems. If the baby, I know a baby uh, recently who, who had its frenulum released at uh, 17 months, who until the age of 17 months when he had his frenulum released, had been unable to sleep other than upright. He could not sleep lying down. He would scream his head off and just couldn't go to sleep. He had to sleep on his mother upright, and he made very strange noises when he slept. Now, that we know now with the, the last 10 years of research that those are one of the, the signs of this type of thing. Um, so that the person later on, if it doesn't get, uh, uh, if it doesn't get clipped or uh, it's called revised now, if it doesn't get released or revised when they're children, uh, later on, an adult can suffer from unexpected migraines, um, jaw tension, the cervical bones, so at the bottom of their neck, uh, can get um, out of place and they won't stay in place. Um, even scoliosis uh, can be due to that. Uh, don't forget it's a midline problem. Um, what else? Orthophony, so speech problems, of course. Orthodoxy, so uh, having braces on your teeth uh, became, I mean, it's a booming business. It's, it's, it's one of the sort of rights of adolescence. It's, I don't know what percentage of people in, in, in their life get braces on their teeth now, but it's absolutely very, very common. We call it um, common currency. There's a term in French, we say common currency. So huge percentages of the population have to have braces on their teeth. So it could be caused by tight frenulum under their teeth. Mm. Um, what else? Neck tension, shoulder tension. Uh, oh, and concentration. Mm. That is one of the things we notice. Children, and you see the, 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 the medical fashion now of giving... Um, What's it called? That medication you give for ads, uh, attention deficit syndrome. Uh, Ritalin. Yeah, Ritalin. Ritalin, yeah. Other medication. Yeah, it's it's another medical fashion. Probably, I would say, a very great percentage of those children on Ritalin probably have a tight frenulum under their tongue. And tell us... Uh, Where you see a tight... Charlotte, mm-hmm. uh, do you notice in France in particular, because we know you live there and you're close to the professions there, are things changing in any way? 
can you tell us? I mean, are, are more and more pediatricians and doctors and, and the um, uh, maternity hospitals and so on, are they becoming any way more aware of these kinds of things, or do you think it's regressing? Okay, starting like it starts out in the U.S., same thing. Little small groups are mushrooming. And that's that's how it happened. There's this homeschooling thing and education without violence and, and health and nutrition. It starts in little tiny groups. And then little by little, the, the groups will network and join together. And it will become, you know, the hundreds monkeys thing. Um, the hundreds monkeys, you get yes. to a certain number of people who who know something and everybody suddenly accepts it as the norm. Yes. And and this is what we're expecting. And, yeah, this is happening in France as well. But the problem with the French culture is because money is the number one, the number one, it's the god, the money god, uh, and has been for the last couple of centuries. Uh, the U.S. is considered boss. Whatever the U.S. does, the greatest thing, the best thing. Everybody's yes. got to follow what the U.S. does. If the U.S. doesn't do it, then there's no point in doing it. The U.S. is, you know, the U.S. has got to set the example. So in France, uh, when homeschooling started uh, to become uh, popular, the sort of hippie crowd or the sociologist crowd over here started getting into homeschooling. Same with breastfeeding. It had to start in the U.S. So, yeah, yeah, things are changing, but it's always in the steps of the U.S. So whatever you're going to do over there uh, is, you know, breaking new ground will happen here, but after it happens in the U.S. Because, and again, you were, you were talking about the fear of going against your entourage, going against your community, community beliefs, which, of course, rules us all. You know, nobody wants to be, to, to not belong. That, that's the reason we're here. That's the number one reason we're here is to be connected and, and to belong. So if you don't do what everybody else is doing, you take the risk of not belonging, of being excluded. Well, the good news, so, the good news is if you just do, uh, like you're saying, a little more inquiry, you find that there yeah. are, there are many, many groups that do agree with you. And, um, you know, like the Leche League or, you know, places like that, that mm-hmm. would have educational information that you wouldn't find normally. So I think my advice to people is even if your immediate environment doesn't support what you'd like to do, look for the places that do support it and get yourself a whole new set of friends, you know, because because there are people who are sane. <laughs> Let's say sane. Yeah, and ask questions. Ask, I have ask, to ask. I have to tell you too though when I took my kids out of school, they were in high school, so my two daughters, my son had quit when he was 16, but my two daughters were in, uh, I think one was a sophomore at the time and one was a junior, which, you know, I regret that I didn't take them out sooner, but the superintendent of schools at that time called me about this, and in speaking to him, what he said to me was, between you and me, he didn't even feel that a child should even go to school until they were at least 10, at least 10. Really? He said they're emotionally not ready for that. And I thought, wow, here's a guy, even though he's in the main system, at least he has some degree of sanity about him. Mm-hmm. Now, Charlotte, parents take a huge risk. Yes. 
absolutely. It, it is a risk. and But that's also where I believe that a new courage is coming from because with, with, with knowledge comes that courage. And the more you inquire and say why, why, why and ask the questions and not accept this, this stuff that's handed down to us, then we start to become more courageous in terms of standing up for ourselves and make different and better choices as a result. So. Brief thing, Hanum. I knew Charlotte. We are running out of time, but I, I just want to say, make this little comment too. With my granddaughter, um, there's some new vaccine that doctors are trying to push now on kids. It has something to do with some illness that's in Mexico, and of course we're in California, so we're right on the border. So they're trying to get all these children in California to get this vaccine. And my daughter doesn't believe in vaccines and um when they they took her yeah when they took her to the docs the doctor uh that they were seeing the doctor refused to treat my granddaughter anymore unless they got this vaccine cuz he he didn't you know his excuse was he didn't want to be responsible for if this child got this illness he you know blah blah so thankfully my daughter changed to a naturopath right then and there and I was like Good for you. Thank God. Now I feel my granddaughter's finally going to get some sane advice. So I just had to yeah, tell you the, the type of um, threatening that they do to these mothers, which is just ridiculous, you know. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, yeah. Charlotte, we do have to wind down here. And I'd like to just run quickly back by way of a summary of what we've covered. And we've covered such a lot. This summary is not going to do it justice. But we, we talked about how the women were made inferior to men, how that whole change in society came about. You spoke at length mm-hmm. about the breast surgery, breast reduction surgery, and the instructions mm-hmm. of pediatricians and how that whole patriarchal system came about, that concept of competition about one being better than the other and how that brought us all into this whole justice, health and religion system of, of, of men wearing robes and the, the Roman influence and the Egyptian influence and how that became the origins of war. Uh, you spoke about the need for caring to become our primary value mm. in society like it was before. Mm. And then we, we spoke a little bit about uh, creeping and crawling with brain highways and bring balance back into our lives. You spoke about home birth and we, we, we talked in general too about breaking free of these dogmas in various ways and how small groups coming together can actually help us and society in general, women and men, break free of these old dogmas. Now, unfortunately, we, we are winding down. We are coming to the end of our program. Can you... Could she advertise her work really fast? We, we're going to have to have you on again, Charlotte, because we didn't really do your current work justice because there's so much history here. But could you tell our listeners briefly about your work and how they can get in touch with you? Uh, okay. Um, well, I'm a lactation consultant, a certified uh, board of lactation consultants, lactation consultants. It's called IDCLC. There are many, many of us uh, around the world. So if you look up IDCLC on the internet, you'll find a group in every country. Uh, because I'm Canadian and Canada, our education more or less is to serve one's community first. So I serve my community, therefore it's all in French. Um, but I do speak English. Uh, what I've done is I've created an association and a website, and I have a YouTube channel, 
and it's all called Allaitement pour tous, which means breastfeeding for all, uh, because I now know that anyone can breastfeed. All it takes is one breast, even if it doesn't work very well. One breast is enough, um, and I've got lots of uh, testimonials and stories and examples of women. There's one Canadian woman who breastfed five children with one breast. Not all at once, but, but of those five children, uh, two of them were twins. So anyway, it's called Allaitement pour tous, so anyone can get hold of me through my website. The, the, the email address is Allaitement pour tous at gmail.com uh, Charlotte, or uh, to my YouTube channel. Charlotte, can you spell that for us? Because we're American, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay, Alexandre, A is in America. LL is in language, language. A is in America. I is in intelligent. T is in taxi. M is in mother. E is in elephant. N is in nomady. P is in taxi, P is in Patrick, O is in opera, U is in understand, R is in Romeo, T is in taxi, O is in opera, U is in understand, S as in sugar, at gmail.com. Okay, that's fantastic. All right, we have to say a huge thank you to Charlotte Young calling us all the way from France and speaking in, uh, all about this, this the lactivism and you are a transmitter of knowledge and an equalist and that has been an absolutely riveting conversation. We will have you back again. Until the next time, though, we have to start uh, winding down. seconds. And remind our listeners that the online Akashic Records group is tomorrow at 10 a.m. and every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific time at worldofempowerment.com. Next week is Susan and Philip Maidley discussing raw food and nutrition. And if you'd like to come on the show and discuss your passion, contact us at angelrose.com. Until next Saturday at 8 a.m. Pacific time, we send you our love, our blessings, and thank you for listening to Ahanu and Angel Rose on the Honest to God series. Thank you, Charlotte. Till next Thanks time. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. This is the Art of Living Well Radio Network. Radio to inspire enlightened living. The Honest to God series with Anne Gail Rose and Ahanu. Thank you.